Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast, the Premier confirms paid sick leave is coming. Why are we locking down Canadians while the elite are allowed to fly around the world? Justin Trudeau has announced new 2030 greenhouse gas emission targets when we've yet to hit one of his earlier targets. And don't be scammed by fake vaccine. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The snow has melted along with the country's patience. Breathe deep, everyone. In through the nose and out through the mouth. Enjoy that natural air buzz, because it's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Tangle up in headphones here. A little meditation there, a little breathing exercise, a little, um, you know, it's just uh, help you get through it all. (sighs) See, we're going to be fine. Uh, Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Uh, and as he has done for 57 weeks in a yeoman's job, I must add, as has, uh, done Jordan Ar- uh, Armanis, who is contact produce, uh, content producing for the show as well. Uh, everybody's, uh, having a difficult time, but it's, uh, amazing how we're all pulling together and getting her done. All right. We got another, uh, jam packed show for you today. You're, uh, feel free to jump in and, uh, be a part of it. Lots of ways to do that through the website. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. All right, uh, news conference this morning uh, with the uh, Premier in isolation as a result of one of his uh, staffers coming in contact uh, with, um, uh, or rather coming in contact and testing positive for COVID-19. Uh, also, we remember last weekend that the uh, Premier announced uh, measures which some called dr- uh, draconian, allowing the police to pull you over and question where you're going. Uh, oddly enough, something that British Columbia and the NDP government had just Im- implemented yesterday. So we'll see if they pull it back like Ontario did. But uh, obviously the NDP in, uh, in uh, British Columbia feeling the same heat that the uh, the premier felt for uh, clamping down uh, on the weekend. And here's what the premier had to say as he apologized for the restrictions and what we went through over the weekend. We move fast to put in measures in place to reduce mobility but we move too fast and I know that some of those measures especially around enforcement they went too far simply put we got it wrong we made a mistake these decisions they left a lot of people very concerned in fact they left a lot of people angry and upset. I know we got it wrong. I know we made a mistake. And for that, I'm sorry and I sincerely apologize. Because as Premier, as I said right from the beginning, the buck stops with me. Again, I'm sorry and I apologize to each and every one of you. All right, that was the Premier 
earlier this morning uh, speaking at his news conference and talking about apologizing for uh, the police uh, overpower that he walked back, I guess, uh, over the uh, soon after the weekend, also closing uh, playgrounds, which they they've obviously walked back to as well. Uh, all right. Let's bring in Andrew McDougall, professor of political science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Andrew, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing just fine. Hope you're doing well, too. Yes, thank you. So your thoughts on the news conference this morning and, and the premier's performance? Yeah, it reflects, uh, you know, him coming to terms with the fact that he's had a pretty bad week over the last couple of days and basically acknowledging that to uh, everybody from from his house. Um, I mean, there's there's no real other way to, to, to look at it except the fact that he's acknowledging that people are very upset with him. His poll numbers are beginning to drop. Um, and he's taking responsibility for this, and he's hoping that he can start to put this behind him uh, and hopefully turn a page, uh, not just on the pandemic, but also on his political fortunes. Um, are you surprised that British Columbia is enacting the same sort of uh, uh, police tactics and, and surveillance and such, uh, pulling over ride programs, that sort of thing, that obviously uh, the Premier in Ontario got tremendous backlash for? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I saw that too, and I thought it was inter- the the comparison between the two provinces uh, is quite striking. I mean, it doesn't look like they've had the same level of of political backlash out there than they had here. I mean, here, when those measures were announced, within about twenty four hours or so, it wasn't just people were upset. You had examples of the police coming out and saying they weren't going to do it, um, and you really haven't seen anything like that out in BC. That at least not that that I've seen. And I'm not exactly sure what the difference there may be, uh, but it may, I mean, also, you know, just kind of off the, the top of your, your head, you might just be the way that Ontarians are looking at the performance of the Premier more generally, uh, where there seems to be a little bit of inconsistency in some of the measures that he's taken. Some of them seem not entirely guided by science, a little arbitrary, and it may have just reflected, um, you know, people's frustration with restrictions that they couldn't really understand why that was going to help. Things like closing a playground, right, for, for yeah. kids after a year you know, how exactly is that going to, um, you know, change the direction of the the pandemic and being so resistant, on the other hand, to things like paid sick leave, which a lot of people say will help with the pandemic. And it may have just reflected a little bit of anger there. Uh, are, getting back to, as you mentioned, the contrast between, uh, we know that obviously one's an NDP government, one's a conservative government, but just amongst the citizenry itself. Uh, I remember when Dr. Bonnie Henry announced the lockdowns just after Easter, like everybody did. Um, she then implemented uh, mandatory maskings, just then implemented mandatory masking in school for those grade four to grade 12, whereas Ontario has been doing the whole year with masking right down to kindergarten, uh, and as well as their online portal didn't get up and running till Easter. We know that those two situations in Ontario, man, that just sends bullets towards the premier. Again, can you explain how one province is, is up in arms about masking and the other one doesn't just implemented it at Easter. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, this thing is, is changing very quickly. So I think this is an area that we'll have to go back to and, and it will be a fascinating study to find out why there was such a different different reaction to it. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, people are just, you know, getting to the end of their rope, I think, with a lot of, of the pandemic restrictions and why in Ontario it just, you know, has, has broken in the way that it has is, is interesting. But 
you know, I mean, who's to say? I mean, we could wait and see how these uh, restrictions pan out in BC. They're relatively, some of them are relatively new. I'll be interested to see how that uh, how that lasts and how far that goes and how much support there is over time. All right, let's. Uh, you mentioned paid sick leave. That's obviously a huge bone of contention. Uh, you know, obviously the opposition has been demanding this. Medical officials have been demanding this for a long time. Uh, the government, provincial government, saying, you know, this is the federal responsibility. They got a program. If it's not working, it's up to them to to kickstart it and, and, and fill in the gaps. Uh, the premier are now using uh, the reasoning that they were hoping something would happen in the budget that didn't. So now they're going to have to. Uh, step up. So your thoughts on paid sick leave now? Yeah, I think this politically was becoming something that Ford just could no longer ignore. Um, I mean, he has not been a huge fan of this. And before the pandemic hit, you know, he had made some reforms to it to, to make it more uh, more difficult um, and, and, and taking up some of the requirements to offer paid sick leave. And of course, this then hit and now people are pointing out that, you know, there's a real discrepancy here. We are asking people, you know, to stay home or to isolate. But a lot of people are put in an impossible position where they can't do that. if They can't afford to do that. And, you know, the government should step in and, and help out here. And, you know, for a long time, he's been trying to say that the federal government has got a program that's sufficient. And people have been coming back and saying that it's not. And he's been very resistant to it. But, you know, there's a very clear um, movement here where people are supporting uh, the introduction of a program like that. And I think after the week that, you know, the Ford government just had, I think he had to relent on this and admit that he had to offer some kind of a program. But he didn't really have any details on that now. So we're all kind of waiting to see what's what's coming. But I just don't think it was a tenable position any longer for him to resist paid sick leave. Uh, Any other provinces doing this? Uh, I'd have to check. I didn't look into that before. Uh, I don't believe any are, although I, I, I don't believe any are, because I've been asking that question and no one has seemed to have been able to come with an answer. So I'm guessing that no other province is doing this. Although Jason Kenney, I saw something earlier on today uh, that he was allowing, I think it was three hours for your first shot and three hours for your second shot uh, paid off for those times. So you wouldn't lose time actually getting the vaccination, not really sick leave in any way. But that was one thing that uh, they had na- had announced. But again, it, it doesn't seem to be something that... Uh, it's an issue in Ontario and, and no other province at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. I'd have to go and take a look and, and see what the situation is in the, in the other provinces. If Ontario does this, then obviously as, as you know, the biggest province in, in the country, I imagine it'll have knock-on effects in other areas. Um, but yeah, I'd have to go take a look. Uh, surprised that um, um, a Conservative government is doing this, even at this stage? Uh, I don't know if it's really surprised i mean the the whole situation is so unprecedented yeah um you know and you've seen a convergence really from all governments no matter what their political stripes on a lot of measures right so i mean really no matter where you go in the country you see a lot of the same health measures that are being introduced a lot of the same concerns being introduced the shutdowns the lockdowns i mean you see this all three levels of government you know here in ontario all the mayors and the premier and, and the federal government are largely all on the same Page. So, I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, paid sick leave is, is an issue in a pandemic doesn't really surprise me, no matter who is uh, who is in charge. Um, and, and the popularity, I don't think it's hard to understand why people want that and why it's so, you know, impossible to resist. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're the premier of Ontario with that many people that are crying out for it.
Are you surprised that the premiers, especially Ford, but all of them are getting more heat than the prime minister is? Uh, the prime minister now, again, everybody's talking about uh, air travel. Why are we locked down while others are traveling the world? Uh, obviously, the vaccine shortage. Uh, it doesn't look like we're going to finish ours until uh, everyone else has finished theirs, and it'll be the U.S. that, that sends up their extras and such. How come it seems that uh, the prime minister is getting off this while well, the provinces are taking the heat? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily they're getting the, uh, the prime minister is, is getting off scot free. I mean, I, but I, his I, numbers I continue that, to increase, Andrew. Yeah, no, no. Well, no, the I, others go no, down. Yeah, I agree that the 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 premier has been getting far more attention. I think that's connected to the fact that healthcare is basically a, a provincial responsibility for you know managing sort of the nuts and bolts of it. And so if the pandemic's not going well, people will look to the provincial government. And people in Ontario don't think this is going particularly well. And so, you know, the premier's getting getting a lot of attention. Um, now, the the prime minister right now is doing, I think, a little bit better politically. Um, but, you know, certainly issues have come up in the past with, you know, vaccine procurement and, and as you point out, with the travel restrictions of people landing at the airports, which are sensitive areas. But there's a little bit less at the federal level for people to sort of get angry about because it's not their lead jurisdiction. We'll have to wait and see. I think this airport issue is something that's got some legs. And I think, you know, depending on how that hand, how they handled that, that could be a political risk area for, for the prime minister. But it doesn't surprise me that the premier is getting more attention than the, the federal government is. Uh, as you mentioned, it is up to the provinces to implement a lot of this stuff. But, uh, uh, Andrew, do Canadians realize that we would be having none of these discussions at the provincial level if we had enough vaccines? So I understand that, you know, things are implemented at the provincial level, so that's where the anger is directed. But, you know, the the whole, whole idea of vaccine production and procurement, that solely falls on the prime minister and we wouldn't be having any of these problems across the country if if that wasn't a weak link in the chain so it seems as if we're we're yelling at the barn door after the horse has already gotten out why uh again why or, or do canadians realize that if we had vaccination none of these provincial problems would exist yeah i mean i, I the federal government responsibility here is pretty clear. And the fact that Canada has no domestic vaccine production capacity has been revealed to be a glaring public health blind spot that the people had not realized before this this had hit. And our reliance on other countries for our, our vaccines is something that's getting a lot of discussion. And there's been new uh, programs that have been introduced to up that capacity. So I believe there's a new facility being built outside of Montreal that will be able to manufacture vaccines and i think there's something in toronto that's that's in the works so they're trying to get ahead of this this was very much you know a huge issue uh earlier in the year when other countries were taking um you know a, a, were doing much better in terms of their vaccination programs than we were we were waiting and the trudeau government got a lot of attention for that those problems have begun to subside a little bit we're seeing more and more vaccinations uh, vaccines arrive we're seeing those numbers go up. Canada's performance is doing a lot better compared to other countries. So the heat is a little bit off the federal government right now. And the attention has really come back to other areas, which are more provincial uh, in terms of, you know, which jurisdiction is running it. And you're seeing the Ford government wearing a lot of this at this point. Uh, obviously, you're, as you said, you're starting to see numbers creep up, but those are just for the first dose. If you include those that have been fully vaccinated, Canada drops way back down to 50th again. So uh, is this all smoke and mirrors? And what happens if the second doses don't arrive on time? 
yeah, if the second doses don't get here, then we're going to see a lot more attention paid to, to Ottawa again to find out what exactly is, is going on here. I think right now people are very excited about getting that first dose, and so we're seeing uh, you know, people happy to at least have some kind of protection. Other mm-hmm. countries are in sort of the same boat here, so Canada's not that much of an outlier. Uh, I think there's a sense of progress on the vaccinations, um, and so you know, there's people are willing to wait a little bit on this one. And we've been given some pretty hard deadlines here. That about, I think it's about 75% of the province is supposed to be vaccinated uh, by the end of June, and I think federally it's supposed to be in the fall. So you know, people are kind of looking at those um, you know, those projections, and I think they're willing to wait to see how that pans out. But you know, if they don't deliver on that, then these uh, the, the federal government and uh, who's responsible for this is going to be you know in some big trouble uh for not being able to deliver the vaccines that everyone's expecting uh you know I'll be, i've got my first shot of az so i'm elated on that but again we can't do anything until that second dose is in our arms i mean we can't open up like the uk has or the usa have until we get that second dose uh, do you think we're going to go through this again well, I mean, I'm not a public health expert, so I mean, I can't give you many projections on, on any of that. Um, I mean, the the politics is that people are, know that they need to get the second dose, and they're expecting it, you know, sooner rather than later. And if it doesn't show up, then um, you know, there's going to be a political price to pay for that. Andrew McDougall with us, professor of political science, University of Toronto. Andrew, thank you for the time. Be well. <laughs> no problem. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you shouldn't have to wait long for the support you need. And for months, my ministers and I have been trying to work with the federal government to fix the existing federal sick pay program. Unfortunately, Monday's federal budget didn't include the important improvements to the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit that we needed to see. That's why we are now working on our own solution to fill those gaps for everyone in Ontario. Clip from Premier Doug Ford at his news conference uh, earlier uh, this morning, uh, apologizing for the measures he put forward over the weekend that had many upset, uh, giving police powers to pull people over, which, oddly enough, the NDP in uh, British Columbia just introduced yesterday. So it'll be interesting to see if they get the same uh, blowback in B.C. that uh, uh, Doug Ford got here. So uh, apologizing, obviously, for those back and now saying that uh, they're going to come up with some sort of program to fill the gap uh, in, in the government program and try to get sick day uh, money to people uh, in a more uh, timely fashion. So uh, that, as we hear of uh, variants in, in India, is just going through a terrible situation right now uh, with COVID-19 variants. That variant, um, I believe, now found in uh, British Columbia as well. So, uh, again, you have to ask yourself why we are all locking down across the country and people are still flying around. Uh, should we be stopping air travel uh, at this point? Let's bring in Dr. Zane Chagla, uh, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine, McMaster University. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me. So is this a time when we should be shutting down air travel? I mean, it, you know, it's, it's odd to look up and see planes flying around and, and everybody else is supposed to stay at home. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's not the. I guess the question is is how do you attack this the best? Do you 
shut down air travel. Well, you know, we know our borders to the United States, for example, people can fly right into the United States and drive over the border and not have a supervised quarantine. Or do you work on the supervised quarantine process such that, you know, again, people have to complete their quarantine in the facility, have to demonstrate that they're negative before they go into society. And I think on the balance of things, you know, we have to be putting it on the table, what we accept and not accept for people coming in and out. If we just say we close the flights to India, well, great. There's direct flights from India, but there's direct right. flights from India to Munich to, to Toronto sure. too, right? And so we really have to be careful if we're going to do this. I think probably the better concept right now, until we get a biologic sense of what's going on with some of these variants is, enforce the quarantine process and perhaps do a supervised quarantine process. Uh, and that may also make travel a whole lot less uh, um, uh, pleased for, for people that really, you know, are a whole lot less convenient for people who may want to do it. Uh, obviously, lots of focus on uh, the provincial level, on shutdowns and restrictions and here and there. We've all been through this for well over a year now. Uh, several times, uh, you know, as far as locking down uh, and that. We certainly know that these variants initially came from outside of the country. We're talking about India having, I think the headline is, uh, double mutant first identified in India now in B.C. Uh, obviously, these come in from other countries. So, again, is it odd to make us all locked down, everybody in their homes, however, still have people flying around? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it, right? I mean, we have B117 here, we have P1 here, we have B1351 here. Um, you know, they're, they're, they, they came in over the border, right? And, and they, yeah. you know, it's, it's tough because they emerged, you know, at a time when where borders were a bit more leaky and we didn't know exactly what was going on and we didn't expect variations to be this quick. Well, this happened three times before so you know the question is why is this happening again now why are we still talking about this now um you know a three-day supervised quarantine in a hotel has been riddled with other issues but again yeah i mean i think we we're getting vaccines we're locking down we're trying to get our disease under control the last thing we need is another variant of concern emerging onto the scene that that may make you know, throw a wrench in everything and may make the plan even harder. So um, I think there's something to be said about travel restrictions, at least until we know what's going on with these. And again, that the vaccines are still effective uh, and that we get a threshold of Canadians vaccinated before we start saying, OK, the border can be open to certain individuals. You know, many have criticized the provinces that they opened up too early or that they locked down and didn't stay locked down uh, long enough. I mean, you know, it's pretty difficult to lock down a country for an entire year. It just seems that this is an obvious example. I mean, who's traveling now anyway, other than maybe business, uh, because there's so many travel restrictions in and around uh, uh, flying. So it, it seems that this is the only thing left. Yeah, you know, it's it, right? And again, you know, I think that the, the before the variants circulated and emerged, you know, the, the thoughts about travel were, well, you know, you could acquire COVID with travel, you can acquire COVID at home, then so be it. Um, now it's a completely different game, right? Because, uh, you know, again, we have different populations, we have different variants, we have different types of spread with these variants. And, and, and the reality is, is, again, we need to focus our epidemiology on home. You, the, the world looks good, in a, or at least Canada looks good in a couple of months once vaccines are out there and things get under control. But, 
again, we can't have another wrench in all of this. And, and you know, we, we really do need to take what's happening in the world seriously um, in order to really, yeah, to, to, to be able to, to have a plan that's consistent and, and not, uh, not thrown off the rails by, by what's happening elsewhere. So let's talk about this double mutant. Uh, mutant. What do we know about this? Uh, obviously, first identified in India, it's now prevalent in, uh, uh, or is now being detected in British Columbia, uh, and obviously one of the reasons why they are coming in with those, uh, you know, police measures and stopping people and telling them where they can go and can't go. That's obviously one of the reasons they're concerned about this. What can you tell us about this mutant? Yeah, so th- this mutant, uh, you know, has two mutations, and, and you know, the, 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 the term double mutant is a bit off because even the, the B117 and other variations are actually multiple mutations. They're not one mutation. Right. Uh, so this isn't a double mutant. It's a, you know, it's a mutant like other mutants. Um, it has two mutations that have been associated with uh, transmission and immune escape, one that was first described in California, and the other that is the same uh, that's common to the Brazilian and South African variants of 484, the, there is a slight change in terms of the actual mutation that's a bit different than the South African or, or Brazilian mutants, but the same position where the mutation is. And so, you know, the combination of these two is thought to be, again, a little bit more transmission and, and, and some studies in California with that mutation suggesting, you know, 20 to 30% more transmission. So not as bad as B117, but certainly more than what was circulating prior. Um, and some degree of immune escape. And, and again, that's the one that's a little bit concerning. Obviously, in a mass vaccine campaign, we don't want immune escape. Uh, and especially as us all, you know, many of us only have a single dose of vaccine. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, th- there's where the, the potential is. This may spread quickly, but also may also reinfect individuals and potentially infect people that have been vaccinated we really want to be careful about these ones as they emerge so why is india having such a terrible time now yeah you know i I don't think um uh uh it's simply just the issues with this variant i mean you know india has a lot of biologic issues that have always been concerning to many of us in this sense, you have people living on top of each other in urban sprawl. We, there's limited healthcare facilities. Ventilation is very poor amongst some of these families, you know, multi-generational and, and large households. And so obviously, if something is going to spread, it's going to spread fast. I think India uh, was also able to get some degree of herd immunity through natural infection, where now if you have a variant that is more able to escape through natural protection, um, you know, you're, you're going to get more transmission. Uh, the last part is, you know, unfortunately, there are politics at play in talking to people on the ground. You know, there's there's been this this thought that they defeated COVID-19 after their second wave uh, and uh, and saw, you know, numbers going down. And a lot of us looked at that saying, you know, that they're not immune. They're not vaccinating. There's still a lot of liabilities there. And, and unfortunately, that's it. And, uh, and again, they've seen an explosion of cases even amongst so, um, uh, you know, those who have probably who have been infected in the past. Uh, Canada obviously receiving uh, AstraZeneca vaccine from mm-hmm. India, as well as the 1.5 we got or getting from uh, the United States back when. Um, many India is, is getting is is become, is under criticism as well for selling more vaccine than they're administering. Uh, to their own citizens is is this just another example of it going out the back door to the highest bidder? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably not going to be getting a lot more vaccines from the Serum Institute of India, given their local issues. Um, and uh, and uh, and so be it. You know, I would, you know, again, make this as the argument. Yes, you know, Canadians, we need to get back to normal. We need vaccinations. We need to decompress our hospitals so we don't see healthcare disaster and calamity. But, you know, us as a world have to be very, very cautious that, um, you know, our, our global partners are just as vulnerable as we are. And again, you know, it, it, these types of things, you know, the development of variants are happening in populations where there's been large scale infections. And so if we don't pay attention to global vaccines that vaccine effort, number one, there's death and disability that's happening where it could be prevented. But number two, you know, we could also shoot ourselves in the foot by creating a variant uh, uh, that that evades our own vaccine response without um, without our our own intentions knowing, right? And so, um, you know, there's there's a lot of focus here to global vaccines, and I think this is unfortunately one in action to make sure that you know our global partners and people that can't procure vaccines appropriately have access to them, such that they don't see one of these events that affects the world as well as their own internal population. Well, I mean, at the beginning of all of this, uh, we heard of the giant portfolio and Canada actually being accused of buying too much, five times more than uh, it actually needed. And as Canada stopped using administering the second dose and really went on the mad dash to just administer the first dose, uh, we saw Canada's numbers shoot up. But as those numbers shoot up, the European Union says, well, why are they beating us when we're getting when we're giving them the vaccine? It's the same thing with India. Why are why is Canada moving ahead of us? when we're giving it to them, selling it to them. Same thing with the United States. So at the end of the day, we're not going to beat anybody. We're going to get our vaccine when everybody else has finished theirs, when there yeah, is extra supply and they finish their right? country. Sorry? Yeah, it's vaccine nationalism, right? That's, that's it, right? And it's unfortunate as the places that don't have production capacity are the ones left behind. Um, and uh, as much as we thought this was going to be an equitable global rollout, it clearly isn't. I think that's as Canadians, though, knowing that our portfolio is big, you know, once we... Well, it's not an equitable... You know, it's interesting because people talk about vaccine nationalism, and maybe I'll ask you to actually give me your definition of that. Uh, but that, that, that to me insinuates that we're not sharing. Uh, yet the other hand, you've got a country that is sharing in the sense that they're selling it to the highest bidder, which we all know Canada is one of those highest bidders. Uh, but they're not taking care of their own people. So yeah, what is so vaccine nationalism? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's that the concept that again, the, the, the places that have production capacity or the, the blocks that have production capacity, the economic blocks are really hoarding vaccines for themselves. Their, their own populations are put first. Now, the Serum Institute is a good example of, of where it hasn't happened, but we can certainly say, I mean, our, our neighbors to the south. But they're paying they're paying the price for that now, doctor. I mean, yeah, you know, no, they're paying the price. They're paying 100%. the price for selling it to other countries first. Yeah, 100 percent. No, agreed. And uh, and, um, you know, it, it is this delicate balance, right? Like you know, the highest bidder is not a, you know, your own country, but it should be the highest bidder. But, you know, if that was the case, Canada wouldn't have a vaccine, right? Like, you know, the U.S. hasn't given any to us. Europe is only giving us strips and drabs and starting to pick up now. You know, it's, it's a balance to the countries that can produce and the balance that can provide. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's a bit out of whack with the highest bidder, too. And I don't know the way to protect it. I mean, we were supposed to have COVAX, which was the global consortium that was donating to a centralized pool. 
but even then it's not particularly great. And, uh, and again, we also tapped into that pool in many other countries to actually get our own vaccines. How concerned are you, doctor, that we'll go through this again for the second dose? Because, again, we're moving ahead. We got over 25% of Canada with the first dose, but we're still sitting at about 2.5% for the second dose, and we really can't get back to any sort of whatever the new normal is until we're all fully vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still very profound effects of a single dose. There are a lot of people, I mean, we we talk about the people that are hospitalized after getting vaccinated. There are a lot of people that aren't getting hospitalized who who got a dose of vaccine where that probably Mm -hmm. scared them uh, and was really what kept them in the community with a reasonable recovery. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, yes, there's going to be issues with the second dose. And I think, you know, places like Pfizer have actually scaled up their facilities to produce as much. Um, rightfully so, though, when we're starting to talk about circling the second doses, July, August, and September, again, I think our supplies are going to pick up a little bit more. And I think we are going to be getting more Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, particularly during those intervals. So, you know, hopefully at that point, you know, community rates are under control. We're seeing what's happening in England after a one-dose campaign where they're opening up and seeing deaths plummet. Um and, and again, you know, that, that stress of getting everyone their second dose as quickly as they need is probably balanced by the protection the community has from a, a large one-dose vaccine campaign, such that it's not going to be as much of a, you know, fighting against a, a fourth or a fifth wave to deal with it. It's probably going to be uh, more of a, you know, a little bit of a healthcare strain on the, the background of, of improvement in that sense. Uh, obviously, we're seeing an uptake on uh, pharmacies and AstraZeneca since they lowered the age over the weekend to 40. Uh, that has to be positive. Uh, that being said, uh, your thoughts on the mixed messaging around this drug? Obviously, yeah. we seem to be being more accepting of it now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the context was different, in, and it still is different in places like PEI, where one's risk of COVID-19 isn't that high on a day-to-day basis. The reality is right now in Ontario with circulating variants and everything going on, um, there is a lot of risk for even a 40-year-old to get COVID-19. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's where this balance lies. Ontario really looked at this and said, well, you know, there's still probably 16, 20 times higher risk of someone like a 40-year-old with COVID-19 getting um, uh, um, uh, ICU or getting a, a complication from it as compared to the complication rate of the, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, also recognizing that we've been trained on what to deal with and what to look for. Um, you know, the balance discussion favored getting this out in the community the fact that hospital beds are drying up also favored getting this out in the community um and you you know you had a a big population of 40 to 55 year olds that are at risk that really just wanted to access any vaccine they could that could make a a risk argument and could have an an informed consent discussion which is what we do a lot in medicine it was a it was a no-brainer right like these vaccines had to go out and again you know them sitting in fridges isn't protecting our province I think people are reasonable. They know where they are in the, the pandemic. They can read. They can take scientific information. And the fact that demand has been so high for this vaccine to the point where, you know, I, I don't know what our supply actually looks like in the next week or two, considering how much has actually been taken out. Um, it's a good thing. I mean, again, this, these are vaccines that were sitting in the fridge that are now in people's arms and starting to process out. Well, I can tell you, doctor, from my own personal experience, I got my shot last Friday in my pharmacy. 
And I, the discussion I had with the pharmacist is nobody wants this. They're canceling appointments. They're not booking appointments. Nobody wants uh, AstraZeneca at that point. Of course, this being a fluid pandemic, by the course of the weekend and them lowering uh, the federal government saying it's okay for the provinces to, 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 to use this in anyone 18 plus, uh, all of a sudden the demand's gone up. And my wife and I were having this discussion on how lucky I was to have jumped on this earlier because if I had waited even from Friday to Monday, getting an appointment now is a lot more challenging than it was last week when nobody wanted it. Yeah, I know it's funny. I had a, a couple of pharmacist friends I was chatting with that were actually saying that, you know, when they made the announcement on Sunday, they had a bunch of 55-year-olds calling in saying, oh, God, give me the vaccine, yes. right? Like, let me get my time. I, I realized I missed out, right? So, um, you know, I may have also just gotten people in that, that wouldn't have gotten in that were actually eligible in that sense. But again, it's good. We, we, we want to burn through this vaccine, right? These have profound effects in preventing hospitalization in two weeks, up to 94% in some of the Scottish data by, by four weeks. Um, right now, we need people not to be in hospital. And it, it, it's so important right now to, to make sure that people are vaccinated one way or another, one group or another. Dr. Zane Chagla with us, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine, McMaster University. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Be well. Take care. Here's today's daily commentary. Why are we all locking down across Canada while Justin Trudeau's federal government continues to let others fly around in and out of countries ravaged by the COVID-19 variants? India has been devastated by COVID-19 variants, and yet JT continues to let the flights arrive from there and all over. This after the UK has already announced a ban on flights from India and the UK is already reopened light years ahead of Canada when it comes to vaccination of its citizens with the second dose. Last week alone, 17 flights into Toronto Airport had COVID-19 positive cases on board. That exposed approximately 2,500 arriving passengers. Why are we screaming at provincial leaders while we let our PM off the hook? Why are we debating lockdowns, who gets vaccinated, and how long we wait for the second dose solely due to lack of supply while Justin Trudeau lets the elite fly around the world and he continues to punt his giant portfolio farther down the field? But I guess air travel is all the province's fault too, even though they have no power to stop air traffic. Only the PM does. And as with COVID-19 vaccines, we're still waiting for Mr. Trudeau to save us. I'm Scott Thompson. Last December, we strengthened our climate plan to reduce more emissions, including with a world-leading price on pollution. This week, we made additional investments in the budget, and today, Canada is in a position to raise our climate ambition once again. Our new climate target for 2030 is to reduce our 2005 emission levels by 40 to 45%. And we will continually strengthen our plan and take even more actions on our journey to net zero by 2050. I think this is what happens when the Conservatives agree to match the Liberals' goals, then the Liberals just extend them. And uh, it's interesting to point out that the Prime Minister has not met one of his climate goals, so including the Paris Agreement. So why even keep upping the ante? 
All right, let's bring in Dan McTagg. I'm sure his head has exploded by now. He's the president of Canada's for Affordable Energy, a former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, and uh, but I don't think we will be. Certainly not our financial pocketbooks, or unless some of us believe that uh, we live in a world of magic and make-believe where you can make all sorts of targets you can never possibly meet. Uh, I find it fascinating today in Ontario, uh, the premier under extreme heat uh, for paid sick leave. uh, And rather than top up that paid sick leave, which is what the prime minister should be doing because this is his wheelhouse, he's upping the uh, the anti on climate goals. Yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And here's why, Scott, Uh, you have, uh, according to 2019 data, we uh, in, decreased our carbon emissions by 1%. Now we need to drop it by 30%, so you're still 29% short. Uh, in 2020, uh, of course, the year of the pandemic, there's every uh, indication that uh, with a complete shutdown of the Canadian economy, North American economy, global economy, we might see a 7% reduction. What Trudeau is, re- so in other words, we're, we might get uh, within 22% of, uh, of that goal in nine years. So what Trudeau is proposing now puts us at a situation where we have to achieve, well, pretty much 49%. <laughs> in other words, it's not going to happen. If it took uh, uh, to get that 1% in 2018 and before, a tripling in the cost of your uh, energy bills, hydro bills, uh, it took uh, uh, you know a significant hit on everyone's bottom line, uh, shutting down coal plants uh, and going through all of the disruption that we've seen to get just 1%. There's no way in the sun you're going to reach 30%, much less 45%. So I don't know if uh, it's because he's trying to impress Joe Biden at his little conference. Uh, uh, and, you know, this is a way of sort of saying, you know, my, uh, my commitment is bigger than your commitment. Uh, but it's both reckless, irresponsible, and, and the stuff of fantasy. And I, I think people have got to start to realize companies, too, are getting on board with the stuff. They're saying, yeah, we can make these lofty, weird, uh, you know, goals of achieving this or that. They know they can't do it. But they have to do it because they're going to be shamed or intimidated by green groups that are out there. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that, certainly with uh, uh, politicians who really haven't got any spine or backbone to push back, much less the uh, academic uh, and factual background uh, to, be, to be able to demonstrate that all of these promises are basically made on a foundation of, uh, frankly, uh, hot air. Uh, is it true he has not met, the Prime Minister has not met the previous goals he has set no. for himself? So why would you increase the goals that you can't meet? Uh, I saw uh, uh, the press ask uh, uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole about this, whether he was going to try to match uh, <laughs> Trudeau's climate plan. He goes, all we're trying to hit, hit, hit here is the agreement, the Paris Agreement. Uh, and Trudeau hasn't hit any of his. Well, look, the Paris Agreement was ridiculous for Canada, a country that had already shut down coal plants, a country that had already produced much cleaner energy. To have suggested that we do that as if we were a dirty country like China, like even the United States or India, is absolutely ridiculous. And uh, most of those countries, two of the three at least I know, have no intention of ever meeting any kind of goal because they refer to it as, quote-unquote, pie in the sky. Uh, look, we are beating ourselves up dramatically we cannot afford a tenfold increase in our electricity prices, a virtual shutdown permanent uh, on the scale of what the pandemic couldn't even produce in order to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement. So, you know, not just that, and Scott, you and I have talked about this in the past. Why is it that Canada can't sell natural gas to another part of the world? Assuming, of course, we get protesters and all sorts of other green miscreants uh, to block our pipelines. Why can we not sell 
our natural gas to China and India and get damn credits for it. So they stop this idea that, uh, uh, you know, that they can continue to increase emissions uh, without any uh, goals, without any uh, accountability. And so for that reason alone, I think we're now in a situation where we have to realize that, uh, uh, like Mr. Uh, O'Toole, uh, Mr. Trudeau, uh, you know, are really holding to an agreement that, frankly, uh, is irrelevant to Canada. It's extremely punishing to the country and detrimental, ultimately, to uh, the goal of Canadians maintaining their standard of living and their social uh, cohesion, because we've lost a lot of it uh, along the way. Just the pandemic alone should be an example of just how bad things can get. Uh, advocates are, are, are saying that uh, Trudeau will be kept to these simply because Joe Biden is going so green and we're going to have to do that in order to keep lockstep with them. But we're already well, way I, ahead of them, are we not? Ask the advocates how they're paid. Yeah. If they're paid by, you know, carbon credits, if they're paid by federal uh, tax dollars. Look, these folks that go around here and uh, and try to get people all aroused over the idea that somehow we're living in a nihilistic world in which the, everything comes to an end in 10 years, take away their funding. And I remember Jean Chrétien having <laughs> saying this many, many years ago when we we're dealing with massive deficits in caucus. He said, you know, if you have a great idea, wonderful, damn well fund yourself. Let them go out and fund their nonsense because I'm seeing a lot of these things uh, this group that uh, came up with the idea that we could go even further than reducing 30% uh, below our 20, 2005 targets, which of course would be impossible to meet as, as 2019 has proven. Same group that told us that, uh, oh, don't worry about the clean fuel standard in British Columbia. It only costs you two or three cents a litre. It actually costs them 14 in British Columbia, which is coming to the rest of the country. It's the same group of people who told us 10 years ago with green energy in Ontario, you would see a quote-unquote 1% increase in your electricity bills, and you might see an extra 50,000 jobs created. We know, of course, that's baloney. We saw a 300% increase in electricity bills, and we saw a net loss job job loss of 30,000. So I'm not sure when, uh, you know, the rubber will meet the road and reality uh, begins to set in with all these folks with their schemes and scams. But at the end of the day, uh, I am more interested in being able to ensure Canadians can make ends meet. And right now, the last thing we need is a bunch of phonies going around saying, you know, shaming other people into why we should be reducing life-giving carbon, because it's not pollution. Let's understand the nomenclature there as well. When you use that word pollution, I think in my mind of knocks and socks, and I think of uh, dirty water, and I think of dirty air. I'm sorry, but carbon is a giver of life. And of course, people who don't like that uh, can stop exhaling if they have a real problem with it. But last time I checked, it's plant food, and we need to keep more of it, not less. Uh, what are your thoughts after Aaron O'Toole introduced his uh, carbon plan, uh, where uh, still a, a he's not calling it a tax, more of a levy. So if you buy a pickup truck, for example, or something that's considered bad, uh, that you're going to pay uh, a tax on that, a levy on that. But instead of that just going to the government into a black hole, uh, it actually goes to you, much like a TFSA account and credited to you. So I don't know, five years from now, if you decide you want to buy an electric vehicle, you can use that towards it. Uh, your thoughts on this plan? <laughs> well, I think many who've looked at this have said it's actually going to wind up costing consumers more. But this reminds me of pulling the same stunt in 2008, trying to explain to people what a carbon tax was and why it was so necessary. And back then we had smart voters who basically rightfully showed the Liberals, my party, the door. We lost seats in an election, and uh, uh, I think uh, you know we have a generation of people who simply left the, the voting landscape, obviously, uh, perhaps old or passed on. But for people who are trying and hard-pressed, looking to make, make ends meet, 
uh, Mr. O'Toole's lost a genuine opportunity. He should have stayed to script, said this is stupid. Let's continue to incentivize, not use the stick, but rather the carrot to get companies to uh, to ensure that their emissions, I mean all emissions, not carbon, but other emissions continue to drop because we've seen a significant amount of that here in Canada, uh, unlike most other nations around the world. Give credit to the organizations, companies and consumers that are doing that. But don't go down this road of trying to be cute and be all things to all people and be trendy because you're worried about the green vote in this country. If people want to believe that carbon is uh, is so bad that it's going to bring an existential threat to our existences as humans, I'd suggest they go back for the past 10, 20, 30 years. The same groups and organizations, different iterations, different names have told us about this doom and gloom scenario. None of it has ever proven to be true. And if it were proven to be true, it may have to do with other things other than carbon, human-generated carbon. It may have to do with uh, sun. It may have to do with the axis, the tilting of the axis. There's a number of factors that go into the cyclical behavior of uh, of climate. And so I think for Mr. O'Toole, an opportunity lost, and uh, I think he's going to lose his base. Uh, he had, uh, through Mr. Shear, 34%. Uh, he'll be lucky to hold on to 25 and it's likely that he will lose seats out Western, in Western Canada, where... Scott, you may want to talk to your colleagues out there. I don't think the Conservatives federally are doing as well as they thought. They were willing to risk votes in the West in their base in order to somehow think that they can win votes in the 905 or in Hamilton or uh, in London. I don't think they can. And for carbon purists, they're not going to vote for the Conservatives under any circumstance. I know these people. They're left-wing. They're uh, very much committed to anything that's in the extreme. And, of course, as long as they have access to the public's funds, as long as they get subsidies and taxpayer handouts, they'll always be there to push their agenda. But at the end of the day, the public will have to start to push back on the stuff and say, no, we need to ensure that we have our priorities set right. Uh, the real crisis, if there is an existential crisis, it is this pandemic. It is not some kind of contrived or made-up idea that somehow the world is going to come to an end because uh, a couple of countries are belching out a little bit more carbon. Uh, well, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Dan. What would you say to those that say you're a denier here? Uh, I think we've had this discussion before. Gerald Butts <laughs> says that the, Gerald Butts says the carbon tax seems to be the best way to do it. Nobody around the world has seemed to find a better way other than this. So, uh, you know, this is the way to go. Yeah. Your thoughts? I think I'm a climate thinker. You know, I, I don't, I don't for a moment diminish the idea that the climate is changing, has changed, and uh, I think folks like uh, Mr. Butts would have to recognize and others. Uh, that, uh, you know, being responsible for the tripling in the price of energy with nothing to show for it, in other words, no appreciable change in the amount of emissions, suggests to me that even if that was your idea, that what you're suggesting is wrong. More importantly, and Scott, you and I have talked about this, the last thing real hardcore climate environmentalists will allow you to do is to put regulations like a clean fuel standard on top of existing uh, carbon fuel, uh, 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 pricing on carbon. And we saw that back in October when I put out a report, which turned out to be correct. The federal government had not done a cost-benefit analysis, and for every dollar of environmental gain, the public was losing six. It's just too far a bridge to attain. And in the circumstances, if you're going to be selective about the things you choose and don't choose when you want to be a carbon uh, climate purist, then the last thing you want to do is to follow what Canada's doing, to have two carbon taxes, uh, which, uh, for everyone's interest, the first carbon tax will probably run you, oh, about 60 cents a litre between diesel and gasoline, and then, of course, another 14 cents on top of that with CFS. Uh, gets you to shut down your uh, natural gas plants. Perhaps you have to go to using electricity, which will be 7 to 10 times higher than what we're paying right now. So, look, all of these things 
are great and wonderful and Socratic little discussions. But as I said to people who use that term denier, which I, by the way, think is a, uh, not that, uh, not that it, it, it's meant from you, but uh, for even the devil's advocates, to use that term in the context of what's been used for in the past in terms of Holocaust denial, I think it's a slur. And people should be very careful when they use that with me, because I will push back very quickly and remind them uh, that this is not the same thing whatsoever. But we need to sort of put dials down and be realistic, I think, about where we're going here, Scott, because, frankly, proposals to increase our uh, uh, our desire to bring down the amount of carbon that's out there uh, and to somehow say that we can change the world doing it uh, without massive dislocation of the Canadian economy, I think you're living in, you know, in fantasy land. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Thanks, Dan, as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Great to be here. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. Let's bring in Michael Mangeris, Professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks, Michael. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the Prime Minister announcing today uh, new greenhouse gas emission targets for 2030? Well, I think that... Um there really is no choice. I think we do have to uh, look at setting targets, but I don't think that that's the end of the story. I think the, the real story is actually accomplishing those targets. Targets have been sent, uh, set before in the past and have been missed. I think it's time that we actually you know, put a plan in place and actually take action to reduce carbon. Uh, that was my next question. Why do this now, uh, especially when we haven't met any of the targets that have been set in the past? Hopefully because, as, as one of the things the Prime Minister said today, that this is now going to be put into legislation, which means we'll make it law. And law will be the beginning, um, I think, of actually action happening. And I, I don't think it's going to be um, the action itself is going to happen because regulation comes forward and we're all punished if we do something wrong. I think what the regulation helps is actually create business opportunity where, where companies will look to say, hey, this is an opportunity where I can create through innovation or advanced technology, I can create ways to reduce uh, our carbon footprint. A clear example is um, Climeworks, which is a company in Switzerland who currently has technology that draws in air, removes the carbon dioxide from the air, um, and then can bottle that carbon dioxide and sell it for industrial use. So, so it's possible. It's possible that these regulations, should they come to pass, actually can form an opportunity for businesses in the future and at the same time help us meet our, our goal. Uh, why now? Why not do all of this before? Uh, again, it's not like we've had ambitious targets that sound good, but have we done the work? I think the simple answer is we should have done it before, but we haven't. And I think what we have to do now is we have to say, all right, enough is enough. We, we've, we've got to stop uh, the Earth's overall temperature from rising too quickly. These... Um, uh, climate goals that has been put together today, not just by us, but by other countries in the world, world really is trying to keep the increase of the average temperature of the world at 1.5 degrees Celsius, which means it's still going to increase. But we have to actually take action now, because if it gets to be too late, if we, if we get past the threshold, then we're going to find it very difficult to actually stop it. Think of it like a like momentum, and that momentum continues to such a point, we won't be able to stop it. And I think that's why action has to start now. Should we be selling cleaner Canadian natural gas to heavy polluters like the China's, India's of the world? I don't think we stop selling it to them. I think what we do is we start to put conditions on it and give them time to react. And I think those conditions can somehow relate to them meeting their agreed to 
uh, you know, goals in terms of reducing carbon and the carbon out, uh, footprint. I think that's quite possible. But, you know, I, what's very important for everybody to understand is I don't think that suddenly we're not going to have power plants that produce electricity and refineries that are producing um, either metals or petroleum products. Those will continue. What we need to look at is how do we do that at, at, at a level that does not pollute that we're seeing today through technology, through alternate uses like electric cars or solar panels or something. And that we then put those conditions on, you know, our international partners. If we're going to sell them raw materials, then we're asking our international partners to still look at, again, creating action to do the same thing. So should Canada increase its natural gas production? Uh, again, so long as the increase in natural gas uh, production does not contribute to an increase in carbon in the atmosphere. I think that can be accomplished, again, through innovation and through incentives for businesses. But it has to happen. It has to be action, not just words. Uh, we're certainly seeing uh, more money put into electric vehicles, uh, plant here uh, close to us in Oakville, others around the country uh, opening up. Are we seeing a shift in this thinking? I, I, I absolutely believe that. I think that we're seeing a transition in the way we do transportation. And that, I think, was driven by the last set of um, carbon goals that were announced. And that began the transition in the transportation sector. I think what we're seeing with these new goals being stated today, again, so long as they're followed up with legislation to ensure action happens, I think we'll start seeing transition in other industries. And as a result, we have a good chance by 2030 to reduce that carbon footprint by somewhere around 40% when we compare it to 2005. I think there's a good chance to do it. I just believe we got to get started. Uh, electric vehicles or mass transit, and I'm sure you're going to say a hybrid of the two, but it, it seems as if, uh, you know, in the past, it's, you know, I remember past leaders saying we're not interested in building any more roads and no roads were built, hence the, the massive congestion we're seeing around southern Ontario, but no transit is built either. So where's the solution? Where's the balance there? Well, I think the solution is whatever at best uh, reduces the congestion that we see. I, the idea to me is to make sure that if the economy is going to be successful, we have to be able to move people you know, in a very efficient manner. In some places, that is mass transit, but I think in a lot of places, it isn't. So if people yeah. are still going to continue to choose you know, an individual vehicle, we'll call it, then we have to have individual vehicles that aren't contributing to climate change. And, and again, I believe the electric vehicle is certainly the first step towards that. Mass transit is not an answer if it's not uh, efficient. And mass transit is not an answer if it's so expensive or so unreliable that people choose not to take it. So, yes, I do believe there'll be a hybrid, but I actually believe that I, that hybrid will lean more towards individual vehicles that will then gather to some node and that they will then have sort of rapid mass transit that will get from that node to a central mm -hmm. place like downtown Toronto um, and as long as that happens efficiently, in other words, people trust that they could get to work um, on time, then it's going to happen. It's going to work. Otherwise, people will continue to drive a car, even if it's electric. You know, Michael, I'm old enough to remember back in the 1970s when they were talking about high-speed rail lengths between Montreal and Windsor and all that other stuff, and it just never happens. 
And that's that's the I think that's a major issue that's contributed to climate change is the inaction by governments, particularly ours here in, in Ontario and Canada. You know, and now we're seeing the result of that. There can't be inaction moving forward. I'm old enough to remember those stories as well. And as we've talked about it, other nations, Japan would be a great example. Other nations have actually done it. This will called bullet trade, um, where they travel the distance from Toronto to Montreal in one hour. So it's certainly almost old technology now. It can it can be done, but we've got to have the political will, and we currently have inexpensive money to be able to invest and make this happen. So there's real opportunity to do this now, but that window will close. Michael Mangeris with us, professor at the Ted Rogers School of Management with Ryerson University. Fascinating discussion, Michael. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. And to you. Thanks again. We all know with COVID-19, it changes a lot of things, provides opportunity for some, uh, opportunity stop for others. And we always have known that whenever there is chaos or anarchy, there is always an increase in the bad guys, in organized crime. And now we're finding out organized crime groups are selling fake COVID-19 vaccines and forged negative tests. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Rob Felzon is with us, head of engineering for Checkpoint Research, and is with us now. Rob, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Tell everybody what Checkpoint Research is. Well, so it's, uh, it's Checkpoint Software. Uh, Checkpoint Software Technologies uh, is basically, we protect the Internet, to put it very simply. Uh, we develop the technologies that help uh, protect you from all of the next-generation attacks that we're seeing uh, all over the world today, that, uh, especially uh, that have increased dramatically during uh, the, the pandemic that we've seen the last little bit here. We were just mentioning, obviously, uh, when there is tragedy like this, chaos, there's opportunity for some. What sort of increases are you seeing? How much it has organized crime take advantage of this uh, situation? Well, there's a little bit to unpack there. So there, there's a couple of different things to respond to that. So first of all, the, the, the increase has been dramatic. So, you know, we've been, we do a lot of research ourselves at uh, Checkpoint uh, about different scams and frauds. And often these things uh, are related to hacking and phishing attempts on, you know, either your email or companies and so forth. And those have been in the news quite a bit lately. Just the, for the fact that you've probably seen them in the news lately tells you that it's been increased. But we've seen almost around 400% uh, increase in these types of activities and attacks, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, nefarious people offering uh, fake vaccines or fake vaccine passports. Uh, this has been occurring very dramatically on the dark web. Uh, and again, as you mentioned earlier, uh, just a few moments ago, you know, this desperation for people to really get some sort of return to normal or the fact that they, there may be a shortage in supply for vaccines is really driving these criminals to, uh, to, to increase their efforts and, of course, uh, bilk you with either your, your money uh, or potentially even your health. Uh, obviously, with the vaccine shortage, demand up, supply is down, so uh, the environment is, is uh, ripe for this sort of thing. Give us an idea of a typical scam. What happens here? Well, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different kinds that are related to COVID. A few of them that are uh, probably the most prevalent uh, I've seen the fake COVID tests. So, you know, pay $25 uh, and, you know, you get an actual test result back that says, you know, you've, you've, uh, that you're negative, for example. Um, you know, people being uh, asked to pay for priority access, right? So I'll get you ahead of the line and, and you know, book you an appointment at a vaccine clinic, uh, you know, in better ways than you could yourself. Again, absolutely a scam. Uh, there's the, you know, pay, the direct payout of pocket for a vaccine. So you send this you know, 750 to $1,000, and we'll send you a cooler with a, with a vaccine in it. 
uh, clearly are one of the most dangerous uh, scams. Um, all sorts of different ones, putting your name on waiting lists. Uh, you know, there's also a ton of different emails and text messages and phone calls from uh, fake vaccine centers or, or fake insurance companies asking you for your money or your personal information in return for something uh, related to the COVID-19 vaccine. So who is doing this? Is this organized crime? Is it international crime? Is it people doing it out of their basements? Who, who, who's, who are, who's committing these crimes? So all of the above, unfortunately. So anybody who's looking to make a buck is trying to cash in on this. I've heard reports uh, there was an individual in Poland, for example, that was caught with a whole bunch of uh, fake labeled vaccines and a cooler in his apartment. Uh, but there's also uh, South African authorities uh, seized a whole bunch, hundreds of fake uh, vaccines in what was basically uh, an Interpol operation where they received, uh, they, they uh, captured basically about 2,400 doses of fake vaccine. Uh, and, you know, that would have, you can imagine if that was delivered into the arms of people, it could have been very, very dangerous. So that one there, there was a whole a network of criminals that were apprehended. Uh, and they they spanned uh, from South Africa, China, and areas like that. So clearly, something that was more organized. We've certainly heard uh, Rob of all these sorts of different types of scams. Now, all of these are just obviously tailored towards uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic and such. Are many falling for this? Because we try to educate everybody about this as much as we can, especially in and around internet scam and such. But obviously, the anxiety around getting a vaccine and the shortage in oh. supply is so high, people are kind of forgetting what they need to do here. Yeah, this breaks my heart. I mean, uh, again, it, it's they're preying on on the weak or those who are you know that are that are scared to be fair and this is the common mo for most criminals if you think about it right you know it's a little bit more nefarious than the you know the rich foreign uncle that died and left you millions of dollars that you get in your email once a week Hmm. Uh, this is a lot more dangerous because people are genuinely concerned about the safety of family members uh, they're, you know, they're suffering uh, in, in a lot of ways with mental health and so forth because of, you know, the lockdowns and things you mentioned earlier in your program. Uh, it creates a lot of pressure uh, for folks. And, and when that pressure occurs, I think it really does uh, cause them to take leave of their senses in some cases and maybe take a risk on something as dangerous as a, as a fake vaccine. Uh, there was somebody just uh, yesterday I heard on the news that uh, was stopped at Pearson Airport uh, for trying to use a fake vaccine passport. So this is actually happening. People are falling victim to it. Uh, wow. Um, we've heard situations. Uh, there was a story the other day. I think this was up in Vaughn where uh, people thought they were getting the actual vaccine and they were getting a saline solution instead. Uh, I, I think that situation was more of a mistake than anything. But have you heard of that sort of fraud or scam happening? Yeah, the one that I mentioned earlier that occurred in Poland, the, the person who was uh, perpetrating that crime was actually using uh, some kind of uh, anti-aging serum that he had in, put into the vials. So it stated that it hadn't reached any arms, but, you know, that's, that's a significant amount of danger that that represents, right? And, you know, when you think about, again, the desperation that you must be at uh, to go ahead and order something like that and pay $1,000 to to try to inject yourself with something, you know, I would encourage everybody to understand you know, especially when you look at the, the information that's available. Moderna, for example, released a, a, a report to the media basically stating that they only sell their vaccine to, to governments. So you should not see a Moderna vaccine for sale outside of, uh, you know, of your clinic, right? You should, you should only be able to get it in clinics and places like that. So really, I encourage people to use common sense. If, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. 
Uh, unfortunately, they're using uh, things like our email and our web, you know, surfing and social media to inundate us with these messages and make it seem like this is something that's not as difficult or as dangerous as it seems, but it truly, truly is. You can see just the, uh, how dangerous this would be by injecting something that you don't, you, you know, isn't what you thought it was and, and, and then exposing yourself and such. But, you know, another thing that you brought up, Rob, that I, I didn't think of, you're ordering this vaccine. It's like, what do you do when you get your bile? You're right. You got to inject. I mean, how many people know how to inject themselves with a vaccine? I mean, right there, that's a nightmare waiting to happen. Yeah, and again, and even if you're going to rely on someone who knows what they're doing, the chances are they'll be uh, they'll be in some sort of medical uh, field and would advise you against it strongly. Yeah. I would hope. Uh, so yeah, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and again. It's, it goes back to this fact that folks are getting you know information from all different directions, and we've seen it in it all over social media. It's very confusing sometimes uh, to really sort out what's true and what's not true uh, for for the average person. So, uh, in the cases of things like you know medical situations like this, where something uh, this dangerous could really affect uh, kind of a, a broad range of people. Uh, I hope it's uh, I hope it's something that this message gets to them and make it clear that you know we are seeing an increased um, accessibility to vaccines and you know those times are coming when we'll be able to get those. I, I too am waiting for mine, so you know, and I uh, certainly won't be going online to find one. <laughs> <laughs> You'd know where they all are, Rob. So they are. Yeah, exactly. So we we certainly hear from people like yourself long before COVID nineteen how you know people will take your own website or you know a message from your boss and make it look like a message to you and then the next thing you know you're passing valuable information back and forth so you can see the same thing here where someone shoots out a thing you think it's from your local pharmacy and it's not the the level of sophistication that we're and this is the other side of the coin here the level of sophistication that we're seeing in some of these uh scams is very very significant so you know in some cases it may even be you know tools that may have been created by nation states for example, that have been released to the wild. And now, you know, hackers and script kitties are picking these things up. And they're so simple to use that they're now turning them against the population, just the general population. And you've seen lots in the news recently about ransomware and other types of malicious software that will sit on your device. After you, you know, you might just look, you, you could just go looking for that fake vaccine, just the mere act of looking for it. The places you may find yourself going would actually expose you to some very dangerous and very sophisticated malware that you might not realize is on your machine. That's, so that's something that, you know, at the checkpoint we are working hard to try to protect people from because it is, it is far more common than I think most people realize. All right, now that we've uh, made people perhaps even more anxious than they already were, uh, what do we do, Rob? Give us some tips here so we don't fall victim to this. There's a number of things you can do. First of all, you know, get go to the source for the resources, right? So the, the Government of Canada has an awesome um, COVID-19 specific frauds and scams page. You can get to that right from Canada.ca. Just type in COVID, COVID-19 fraud and, uh, and you'll, it'll come up. It gives you a lot of great tips there as well. Um, I would recommend checking out if you're looking for, you know, how these things happen and the technical side of it, absolutely check out research.checkpoint.com. And if you've heard about an attack or some sort of, um, you know, interesting malware, you want to read about it, there's a good chance we've covered it somewhere on that uh, on that research blog. Is there, I, I guess there'll always be people who fall for scams. Are, are, are the typical people who would fall for these scams falling for these ones, or is this stretching beyond that normal segment? I would say this one probably presents an even greater risk because, again, 
there is so much. Uh, we've never seen anything like this, and certainly in, in in my 50 years on the planet, I haven't seen anything like this. It's created a level of of concern and a level of anxiety, I think, amongst people that really, again, drive them to do things perhaps they wouldn't normally do. So I am concerned about this uh, in particular. I'm concerned as we move forward about scams involving vaccine passports and our ability to go and attend venues, hockey games, uh, and things like that. Um, again, we're going to be looking at fraudulent activity related to, um, you know, cloning these passes or trying to make fraudulent documents. That creates a big concern for me because I could find myself on a, on a plane or something with someone who maybe shouldn't be there. This Rob, this almost reminds me, it's, it's funny how things progress, how they stay the same. This is almost like people creating fake IDs so kids can get into bars. It's exactly the same thing. And, and if we do move in that direction, I mean, there are tools we can use. There's lots of technologies that we can, we can be as careful as possible. But we've seen the, the level of incredible creativity uh, that these, these hackers and, and malware developers have exhibited in the past. So it, we, we do have to remain vigilant. You know, make sure that you're super careful when, you're, when you look at email. Don't click on anything from anybody you don't recognize. And if you hear something, go to the source. If it says it's from a doctor, go to your doctor and ask them about that information. Just don't believe something you read on social media, whatever you do. We certainly know, Rob, from talking to others like yourself who, who you know, who are uh, watching this in and out of a global pandemic. And we certainly know uh, that with, you know, the standard fraud that, that usually exists before this pandemic, that it was really, really hard for law enforcement or officials to track this down or, or prosecute anybody. Same thing here. Is it impossible to know where this is coming from or are these yeah. people being found? Uh, well, they are they are finding some of them, which is which is heartening. Um, and remember, as technology increases and improves over time, the the bad guys are using the same tools the good guys are using, right? So it's a bit of a cat and mouse game. So I do believe that you know, as as the law enforcement becomes more wary of the methods that they're using, uh, we'll start to see more and more of these being caught. Uh, I think in the short term, they they look to take advantage of these things in very short order. Uh, and then, you know, maybe they're in and out of this illegal market very quickly, right? And then on to the next scam, if you will. Uh, so I, it is, there's a challenge there for law enforcement, for sure. And with the use of encryption and other tools, uh, we really have to use our, our best tools uh, against this type of thing. And we do consult with law enforcement uh, as well and help them uh, in identifying some of these challenges. It's going to be fascinating to see what the trend is, what the scam is getting out of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, there's, there's, there's stuff here that we probably haven't even thought about yet. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I can't wait to start playing hockey again. So uh, <laughs> I'm hoping we uh, figure this out nice and soon. <laughs> Rob Falzone with us, head of engineering for Checkpoint Research, organized crime groups selling fake COVID vaccines and forge negative tests. Uh, taking advantage of people in this vulnerable situation. Rob, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.